the state legislature reconvened for a new session earlier this month. Uh, so much of what happens in Albany determines what happens in New York. So much of our politics is controlled uh, by the state government. And between now and the end of March, the legislature and the governor will be working on the annual state budget of more than $200 billion that touches all of our lives for better or worse. And other big initiatives often get rolled into the final budget deal. Um, and, of course, there are a lot of unmet needs in this state around affordable housing, mass transit, expanding renewable energy, full funding for CUNY and SUNY, and much more. Advocates were busy making their voices la- heard last week at the beginning of the session. Here are clips from a- advocates, uh, first from the Housing Justice for All Coalition, and then supporters of mass transit. Buses and subways cost money. If we want buses and subways to come every six minutes, we got to pay for it. And there's nothing better for working New Yorkers, working families, our environment, street safety, than a fully funded bus and subway network. Let's get six minutes. Let's get Yesterday, we spoke with State Senator Kristen Gonzalez. She represents State District 59, which runs down the East River from Astoria to Williamsburg and also includes a part of Manhattan's east side. She is the third Democratic Socialist State Senator to be elected in New York since 2018. And at 27 years old, she is the youngest woman ever elected to the New York State Senate. During our conversation, Gonzalez, a former tech worker, spoke about her passion for reining in the surveillance state as the new chair of the Senate Tech Committee. Uh, She also spoke about the Hector LaSalle nomination, the need for sweeping legislation on housing, mass transit, the environment, and more, all paid for by taxing the 1% a little bit more. And also she spoke about how she balances collaborating with her colleagues inside the state Senate and with her comrades in the Democratic Socialists of America, of which she is a member. Senator Kristen Gonzalez, welcome back to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. It's great to have you here with myself and my co-host, Amma Gagarian. It's really great to be here. Thank you both for having me. So tell us, Kristen, congratulations as well. Tell us what your top priorities are moving forward now that now that you're in office. That's a great question because we just got our committee assignments at the beginning of session. So I am the new chair of the Senate Internet and Technology Committee, which is really exciting for me as someone who was a tech worker and also organizing in the tech space around things like privacy and surveillance technology. So really bringing our democratic socialist values to that committee to protect all New Yorkers and ensure that we're holding law enforcement accountable for how they're using surveillance technology, ensuring that our privacy rights and our Fourth Amendment rights are protected and that, you know, the city is, you know, safer and our democracy is stronger when we really have progressive tech policy that puts New Yorkers first and puts our rights first. So that'll be a major priority. We also launched um, or announced our first bill, uh, which was, you know, the 
uh, basically essentially a bill that in coordination with the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project and the Privacy New York Coalition closes a loophole that law law enforcement currently has where they can take any of our personal data from things from like Omni or libraries without a warrant. And so our bill closes that loophole. um, And I'm excited to have launched that within the first couple of weeks. Um, A second priority and third, of course, not in the order of how important they are, but we will be working on housing. We will be working on passing good conviction and ensuring that our state is truly deeply affordable. And similarly, we ran on climate, right? So climate is a priority. Um, And I'm very lucky because in addition to chairing the Internet and Tech Committee, I'm sitting on the Energy and Telecommunications Committee. So I'll get the chance to pass BPRA again or the Build Public Renewables Act again. Um, I'm on the Disability Committee on um, Transportation. So we'll be looking at fixing the MTA. And I am also on ethics and ethics and then also consumer protection. So a lot of exciting committees, a lot of exciting priorities. And I just feel very grateful for the chance to to work on all of these with the other Democratic Socialists in, in Albany. Yeah, just to follow up about the, the tech committee you're on and, and uh, uh, law enforcement and its surveillance powers. Uh, here in New York City, Mayor Adams has been very aggressive about uh, saying that he wants to really ex- sort of expand the surveillance state uh, in the city, more cameras on the streets and more drones uh, flying over the city uh, and and who knows what else. Uh, do you see your work on that committee and is in some way uh, a, a check on uh, what the mayor might have in mind? And it, is it possible to check him from Albany? Well, I think on the state level, we have the opportunity to set really clear guidelines across levels of government. So this loophole I talked about also applies to the city level. So we're closing it on multiple levels of government. Um, you know, we are seeing the surveillance state expand and it's not only an issue of one elected one seat like the mayor, but it's an issue that's industry-wide and statewide. And so if we can really take the lead as New York and not be so reactive in our policy, but really be proactive and say, this is what protecting our privacy means for New Yorkers, then we're really putting ourselves in a good position to, you know, challenge any um, overstep or abuse of this type of technology from law enforcement or from any private entity um, or even individuals. You know, what comes to mind is what happened this week with billionaire James Dolan at Madison Square Garden. He was using surveillance technology, specifically facial recognition, to check every single person who came into Madison Square Garden for an event and specifically kick out any lawyer that was part of a firm that was involved in a lawsuit against the garden. And that's a clear abuse that, you know, not only we're seeing the wealthy play by different rules, but also a clear abuse that anyone else could do. So we need to set a standard. We need to say that that's not allowed. Um, And I was really proud to stand with, you know, legislators from, you know, both chambers, the Assembly and the Senate in a press conference yesterday and really call on on him to stop abusing surveillance technology and, and targeting people with it. Right. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's real and, um, it, it is frightening. And, uh, we see it also with the consolidation of Facebook and Instagram into Meta and Twitter under Elon Musk. And years ago, the NYPD using 
facial recognition, which they still do. So I'm really happy that you're here to fight that because we need it. It's very, very modern struggle. And another thing that unfortunately is becoming sort of unavoidable is the housing crisis and the housing crisis that already existed before COVID and has been uh, made worse with rents skyrocketing. So going into a new session, um, it's likely that good cause eviction bill will be back on the table, which would protect tenants in New York from basically uh, being evicted for no reason and protect a certain level of uh, rate hikes, sort of unreasonable rent hikes. Uh, what what are plans around this and other housing issues? Yeah, so housing is front and center for my district. I have three boroughs in my district. I have Queens and Astoria, Long Island City, Brooklyn and Greenpoint, Williamsburg. And in Manhattan, we have Stytown all the way up to where the UN is. We have Gramercy, Kipps Bay, uh, Murray Hill. And when I list those neighborhoods, I am sure what comes to mind for all New Yorkers, we're talking about very expensive real estate. We're talking about some areas areas that are rapidly gentrifying, um, you know, rapidly developing. And I'm excited to take that fight up at the state level. It's what we ran on when we were talking to tenants and organizing with tenants around this campaign and, and why we didn't take a dime from real estate. Um, but really take up that fight with you know, passing the good cause eviction bill so that people can stay in their homes and not have not only unjust evictions, right? If you're a good tenant, you should be able to stay in your home, but also, um, you know, prevent these astronomical increases that are equivalent to an eviction, right? When you have hundreds of dollars added to your lease, when it's being renewed for New Yorkers, you know, most of us are scraping by. We can't afford that. So that's one bill that's trying to target um, affordability, but there's so much more. The Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, um, we're looking at ensuring that we are, you know, pushing back on 421A or any replacement programs like 45W, which is, you know, tax incentives for these luxury developments across the district. And even more than that, when we talk about housing in, in you know, across the boroughs and from what I've seen, as a democratic socialist, we're really centering housing as a human right. It was incredible to hear the governor use those same words. So I'm glad we agree that housing is a human right, but how we go about it, setting a standard for how we go about it and what truly deeply affordable housing means, that is where we need to continue to organize on the outside and organize in Albany because we cannot just sell out our communities to luxury real estate developments and hope that the market will heal itself. No, we need to keep people in their homes and we need to not just focus on commodifying this human right. You cannot, you should not be commodifying human rights, ensuring that we are actually uh, pushing back on our current commodification of housing with real social housing alternatives. Right. And, uh, uh, it had a big victory in your district uh, just recently when uh, the tenants at uh, Stytown Peter Cooper Village prevailed in a long legal battle against the uh, Blackstone Corporation. I'm so glad you brought that up. So for folks who may not be familiar with uh, this lawsuit that has been ongoing, Stytown has one of the largest shares of rent-stabilized units in the entire city, right? And they were... Uh, after being bought by Blackstone, they were at risk of destabilizing almost 6,200 units um, because of essentially, a you know, a, the J51 tax program. But in court, this win actually ruled that Stytown was in the right, that these units, those 6,200 remain stabilized. And is a huge victory, not only for Stytown, right, but for tenants everywhere, because they took on one of 
the richest uh, companies in the entire world and they won in court. And if we can do that here to protect our, our tenants, I think we can do that anywhere. So, so excited to have that in district. And there was a lot of celebration happening the last week <laughs> for our movement. A lot of times movement grassroots elected officials can lose their base because of the go along, get along way that politics works in New York and beyond, whether it's being, you know, bought out on some things with landlords or construction or re-election favors for other elected. So how do you plan to navigate that? Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. You know, we may move as a democratic body, but not all Democrats are created equal and essentially, you know, Democrat as a democratic socialist, we're very clear about who we're accountable to and who we're working with. So I didn't take, you know, I mentioned this, I didn't take a dollar from real estate or corporations or PAC money in the primary. That's going to continue to be the same because there's no way that I can take that money and be accountable to the district. In addition, the way that we organize our district office is different. We really believe in focusing on constituent services, um, engaging community organizations across the district to really create a stronger sense of community and not just provide real material gains for working people, but to build power and build our base. So even in office, we're using this as a way to redistribute the power away from just, it's more than just me, one seat, one person, right? It's how do I use this office to redistribute that power to my constituents, right? To have them be as, you know, the, the guiding uh, voice and factor in how I legislate. And then also, um, how do I work within the socialist in office block, which is now at eight up from six with myself and Sarah Hanna? How do we work together to push a really clear agenda that focuses on taxing the rich, that focuses on housing and housing protections, on climate justice, on criminal justice, on really just material gains, like I said, for working class, black and brown New Yorkers? Um, so that will not change. Um, but as a, as, as a legislator, I think the inside outside approach now going from an organizer on the outside to being on the inside, my job is to bring that, push that, be accountable and transparent, but also to build relationships that will help us, right? That will help us pass this legislation. And that's why, you know, like I said, I'm excited to see other Democratic senators and also even assembly members, right? My first bill is with one of my overlaps, assembly member Epstein, um, who, who are open to working, uh, together on these. And, and, and the DSA actually holds its officials that are official DSA public officials to pretty strict standards in order to keep running, uh, on that line. Correct. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah. So as I, um, you know, I I was talking about the socialist in office block. So there used to be six. We elected two more. So now we're at eight and we meet every single week with our representatives from chapter meetings, from branches, from working groups. And we have these conversations where we aim to vote as a block, right? So we'll have the conversation for what is best for our organization, what is best for the movement. And then not only are we, when we vote, accountable to each other, accountable to the other (laughs) electeds who are in Albany, but that block voting model is a way to be accountable to the larger, right? To the many. And it's, it's, it's a clear check and, and why I wanted to run for office because I believe that this way of governing also, you know, ensures that if anyone is, you know, straying from that, right? If we're not voting or going against those votes, it is a clear way to flag that and, and, and a clear way to hold people accountable, right? Right. And, um, in, in these last few minutes we have together, 
we want to ask you about a, a topic that's been mm-hmm. roiling Albany for almost a month now, which is the nomination of Hector LaSalle to be uh, the chief judge of mm-hmm. the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York State. That's a, a court that's ideologically divided three to three right now. Uh, you've come out, you were the very first member of the caucus to come out in opposition to the LaSalle nomination. There's now 14 Democrats that have said they won't vote for him. Uh, can you share your thoughts on, on why you are opposing LaSalle's nomination? So talk about coming out of swinging <laughs> in office. Yeah, on day one, we made it really clear that someone who has a history of conservative decisions doesn't necessarily represent New Yorkers best. And even though it would be historic to have our first Latino, as a Latina legislator and as someone who is on the younger end representing the next generation of of Latinos and Latinas, of voters, I can say that this is not the type of representation we want. And to put it into context, right now, you mentioned we have that three to three divide. Adding Hector LaSalle to the court would solidify a four-judge conservative majority, which would then last until 2030. That is years of conservative decisions. And when I say conservative, I have gone back and read the cases, right? Of course, a judge in the course of his career will go ahead and, and join many, many decisions. But we have seen a clear pattern. It is not cherry-picking cases. When you go back, you can see him siding with um, citing against abortion rights. You can see him citing with, um, you know, companies instead of unions, right? That's why labor has come out so against him as a pick. Um, that's why, uh, you know, reproductive rights activists have come out against him as a pick. You can see him r- ruling against youth and immigrants. There are so many decisions that are really clear that, one, there is a judicial philosophy that is inherently conservative, and two, something he would absolutely bring to the court. So, it's a high stakes situation for all New Yorkers if we really want to protect the most vulnerable among amongst us. So while I appreciate the sentiment behind appointing a Latino, what I can say is that Hochul really wants to fight for Latinos and Latinas everywhere. I would really love for her to pull that nomination or reconsider before he gets to his committee hearing this week, um, because there are some other really incredible um and experienced and qualified people on that appellate bench um, that she had to choose from. Right. Now, uh, this weekend, uh, Governor Hochul uh, was uh, uh, visiting uh, churches in Latino communities uh, in New York, in the Bronx, in Sunset Park, uh, advocating uh, for Hector LaSalle. We have a clip for you to listen to of her speaking on Sunday at Trinity Church in Brooklyn, where she made an analogy uh, between supporting uh, Hector LaSalle and carrying on the legacy of Martin Luther King. We've seen struggles throughout our history. The lives of people like Dr. King. My own parents were criticized for being so far left in a certain area. And that's who I was, how I was raised. So I need to know that about me. The values that I bring to the selection process and how I found the person named Hector LaSalle, who yes, will make history. And it's about time we stop making history. It should never have taken this long for a person of color, Hispanic, to lead the highest court in our state, and he will. Your, your response, Senator 
Gonzalez? Yeah, it is incredibly disappointing to hear uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy be applied to this situation. Um, I, I really cannot stress enough just how in, incorrect, not factual, this is. Um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., I would encourage the governor to go back and read a letter from Birmingham jail where he cautioned against white moderates. And she talks about this issue of LaSalle being, you know, one where we're sending a man of color, um, pitting him against, you know, the other people and it's, it's longer. It's an unfair, you know, situation. It's not, that's not true. He is getting his hearing this week. But I would also say that it's not an issue of the left versus the right. And we know we should be very, very wary of moderates or what it means to be moderate at a time where one, our Supreme Court is radical and cannot be trusted on the federal level to have a conservative uh, highest court in New York would be an insult to all New Yorkers, an insult to everyone who's been fighting against the radical and very organized far right agenda that is affecting the most vulnerable amongst us across the country. I think, you know, I certainly think that, you know, she goes back and really reads and takes time to reflect on MLK's words, and then also as someone who is a young person of color, she will see that the way that the justice our community needs is a court that protects our rights and not someone who has a repeated history, not just a few cases, more than a few cases, a repeated history of siding against people who are marginalized or vulnerable, the very type of the very people that MLK fought for. And in, in our last minute together, uh, your comments on whether this is or how this is a misuse of identity politics. Mm. Absolutely, it is because, you know, I, I, it's being positioned as, uh, you know, a Latino against uh, that's being supported by the Latino community. But there was a letter of over 70 Latino and Latina electeds, community organizers across the city and state that voicing our concern about Hector LaSalle. And when you add that, to the letters that have been sent from, you know, countless law professors across the state from, again, reproductive rights advocacy from the NAACP, mind you, the NAACP coming out against LaSalle within the last couple of days. When you add all of that together, you are, you are seeing and hearing New Yorkers most vulnerable. You are hearing the Latino and Latina community saying, we do not want Hector LaSalle. But what we're not seeing is our governor listening to us. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. But uh, Kristen Gonzalez, state senator uh, from uh, Queens, Brooklyn, and uh, part of the east side of Manhattan, thank you for, so much for joining us uh, this uh, today on the Independent News Hour. Thank you again for having me. Um, I can't wait to to talk to you again this year and reflect on how the session went. <laughs> Indeed, we, we look forward to that.